Tonight we're doing a prophecy update, and I welcome those who are watching through social media, through our website, listening on WLGS radio, or maybe you're going to hear this message at a later date. It is a timely message in the sense of there are current events going on in our world that I have documented in this sermon. But for months now, I have had a passage of Scripture, a scene in Scripture that's found in the book of Amos chapter 5, running through my mind. And uh, everything that keeps happening in our world, when it seems that we get through one thing and we just begin to catch a breath and something else happens. It's been reminding me of one verse in Amos chapter 5. We're going to look at a portion of Amos chapter 5 tonight, looking at verses 16 through 27. And I will definitely share that one verse with you. Several years ago when I was a teenager, uh, all my friends were out swimming at a lake, and there was a raft out in the lake. And one of the girls that was with us was unable to swim out to the raft, so I said I would take her out there, and I did. I carried her out to the raft, and we hung out there, and it was time to go back. And I don't know if it was show or not. Part of me in my heart thinks it was, because this girl liked to get attention. But halfway back from the raft to the shore, she decided that she was not going to make it, and she was drowning. And so... She was panicking, and since that time, I now wouldn't know too much to do, but as an older teenager, I got my license, or my life-saving card so I could be a lifeguard, and I would have known what to do. And one of the things they tell you to do is to, when someone's panicking, just get away from them because they'll pull you down. Well, that's what was happening to me at that occasion. The whole time she was screaming, she was above water, but I was below water. And you can only stay below water so long until you get in trouble. So for me, it became a fight of getting my head above the water. And it seems that every time I would come up and start to take the breath, she would push me under again. And it was just making my situation worse. Thankfully, some man, I believe a father, on the shore swam out, swam out and saved her. But what he didn't know, he actually saved me because he got her away from me and knowing how to swim, then I was able to get above water and I was fine. But she kept pushing me down in that scenario of disaster after disaster. I remember coming up and starting to take a breath and not being able to complete it and probably even getting mouthfuls of water instead. And the situation was getting desperate for me. Well, that reminds me of one verse of Scripture. I'll go ahead and read the verse, and we'll go through this section from 16 to 27. But Amos chapter 5, verse 19. I've been thinking about this verse for months, although I had to look it up. I knew that there was a plight of someone running from danger to danger. I didn't remember where it was in the Bible. And uh, in my head, I was thinking, I'm going to have to get to that. I know it's scripture. I got to find that spot. This is the verse that has been my, on my heart most of 2022. 
Amos chapter 5, verse 19. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. I have that vision of him going into the house and in a sense of relief, kind of leaned in on the wall. I made it just to get bit by a snake. And he didn't make it. He fled from a lion to meet a bear. He ran into his house, I'm assuming, for safety and was bit by a serpent. And that's kind of how 2022 has been feeling for me. In fact, let's take it back all the way to March of 2020 in the last couple of years. It seems as if we get through one event, something else rears up its ugly head and it's been back-to-back calamities happening in our nation and throughout the world. And it only seems to be getting worse and not better. So by the time we get to Amos chapter 5, God in this prophetic book had already revealed his judgment against Israel. And although judgment was coming upon the nation of Israel, the Lord in his grace extended mercy to the individuals within their nation. Therefore, Amos 5, 16 through 27, we find God calls for his people to let justice and righteousness flow even in the midst of the most challenging times. And they were in a very challenging time. In fact, the prophet was saying calamity was coming and the nation would be no more. And yet God was calling for individuals in the nation to let justice and righteousness flow. And this really teaches me, and we'll get into it as we get into the teaching, that even though our world seems to be heading on a, a course that really seems to be pointing to the last days of Jesus Christ and his second coming, we as believers have a responsibility in this world, as long as the Lord has us in this world, to serve him. And as it says in the book of Amos, to let justice and righteousness flow. We may not be able to do anything about what's happening in our nations, uh, in the leadership of our nation, but we do have a responsibility as individuals within this nation to let justice and righteousness flow. So we begin by learning about a wailing and a mourning in verses 16 and 17. It says, the Lord, God of hosts, the Lord says, there will be a wailing in all streets and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the farmer to mourning, the skill, skillful lamenters to wailing, all the vineyards, there shall be wailing for I will pass through you, says the Lord. At this time in Israel, it was a very wealthy, but also a very evil time in their nation. And as a result, God said, I'm going to come against you. I'm going to pass through you. It literally means that God was bringing judgment against them. God had already said in verse 7 of chapter 5 that he was going to turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. And yet, in God's grace, he called in verse 4 
for individuals within Israel to seek me and live. Trouble was coming upon their nation, but God's calling to the individuals to seek me and live. Trouble was coming to their nation and God's calling for individuals to let justice and righteousness flow. And I see that trouble is upon our nation. And I believe he's calling for individuals within this nation to seek the Lord and live, to let justice and righteousness flows, flow. It reminded me of uh, Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. You'll know this intro, the very introduction of the book. But it's, it's kind of speaking about this balance of wealth and evil, of good and bad. In the introduction to the tale of two cities, the first paragraph reads this way. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief and the epoch of incruelty. It was a season of light, and it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil. And we find that we are in a similar time in our world. We have both good and evil uh, upon this earth, good things happening in the world today in the sense that God is still on the throne. We must never forget that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. God is on the throne. He has a plan, and his plan ultimately um, comes with the Lord coming for his church, what we know as, as the rapture of the church, and then uh, coming seven years of tribulation upon this earth, the great white throne judgment, the BBC judgment, the second coming of Jesus Christ. God has a plan, and yet that plan is perhaps right now being unfolded before our eyes and in ways that we have not seen before, in ways that I have not seen in my lifetime. And the result of Israel, though, in verse 12, God described Israel as having manifold transgressions and mighty sins. I believe these same words could be spoken about the United States today. And God revealed their coming judgment. That would be a time, verse 16, of wailing and mourning. He said, call in the professionals, the professional lamenters to wail. When I was in Africa in 2009, the first night we were there, Long into the night, the drums were playing. My first thought was like, it was just like a Tarzan movie. They actually do this, play drums into the night. I learned in the morning that there was a man whose wife died while giving childbirth, and the drumming was an act of love. And so the family members would play and play and play and could, until they could not play anymore. So that drumming went long into the night to show love for the person who had died. Perhaps at times they hire drummers to do this for them. That would not be the intent. But in the nation of Israel, they had professional lamenters. And the louder somebody could cry and lament, it meant the greater that person was loved. 
God had the farmers, the lamenters hired in, wailing and mourning. God said in Amos 8.10, I will turn your feast into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. And I will make it like mourning for an only son, its end like a bitter day. So there is this call of the Lord saying, alas, alas, there in verse 16. Alas, alas. It's a word that can express either woe or grief. And God said there would be wailing in the streets from the cries of the highways uh, to the farmers, to the vine dressers because of the lost crops. Such similarities that we have what do we keep hearing now that we have only nine days of uh, nine meals before trouble will come upon our nation and we're seeing shelves empty in our stores and we have a government that right now is encouraging biofuels to be made to help with the expensive gas prices and Lance I remember this from your daughter doing a study on making uh, for 4-H I believe it was uh, making ethanol that it, I just remember from years ago being told that it takes three gallons of fuel to make one gallon of ethanol. This last week I learned that it takes 20 pounds of corn to make that gallon of ethanol as well. So 20 pounds of corn, three gallons of fuel. Uh, it's like my son was telling me in Hawaii, his friend Nick bragging about his all electric car his island in Hawaii, they have electricity because of diesel engines running, giving them electrical power. And so he may have an electric car, but they're using fuel to create electricity to charge the car that he's bragging about to his friends. And my son said, he called me and said, can you come and pick me up because I have to charge my car and there's no charging station where we're going. My son's response was what? I have to waste my fuel to go get you? because your electric car has to be plugged in. Some of these things, it seems to me that we're trying to do things that we're not ready for as far as technology is concerned. And we're gonna find out fairly quick, quickly in this nation, it's gonna bring trouble. It could be alas, alas, a woe, a grief, and a loss of crops. And I, I went off on that tangent about the electric vehicles and fuel and uh, increasing uh, f up to 15% of our gasoline with ethanol because we're using corn to make ethanol, but when we use corn to make ethanol, we're taking food that could be grown for the purpose of feeding a nation or feeding the nations of the world. That we're exchanging one thing for another and trouble is a coming, coming upon us all. In Joel 1, 10 through 12, it says, the field is wasted, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, and the oil fails. Hmm. Man, talk about some timely things. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, and the apple tree. I hope we have apples, Lily. <laughs> 
All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy is withered away from the sons of men. So goes the crop. So goes the heart of the people. And they lose that substance that would be gained by the product from the field. And the people's joy withers away with it. They lament. They mourn. Perhaps the best example from Scripture about the Lord passing through judgment on a nation is that of Egypt. When we have learned in the book of Exodus, God judging the nation of Egypt, who had held Israel in bondage for a period of more than 400 years. And in Exodus 12, 12, it tells us, God saying, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. God was going to execute judgment. He did on Egypt. He now is going to do it upon Israel. And I wonder if we're experiencing some of the judgment of God upon this nation through the things that we have seen and throughout the world, actually. It wouldn't surprise me. We have a nation that has turned her back on God, um, we've had a lot of mass shootings of late. I didn't put any of that in my message, I don't think. But one of the comments I heard made, made after one of those shootings was, enough of prayers, we need to do something. So quit looking to God for help. Let man be that help. We're only going to make it worse. And it seems like they're trying to get there. So a few things about the nation. We have coming up at the beginning of next month, July 1st. It will mark 246 years since our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence. On Monday, I did an online church, our online search, asking, how old is the United States? Here's one of the first answers that I looked at. According to our country's history, and this should, you should know, the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, making our country, this was written a year ago, so it says 245 years old, we will be 246 this year. However, and then they put this kind of disclaimer in right after that, however, Native Americans have occupied the area that later became the U.S. for at least 12,000 years, they go beyond biblical history. And in the late 18th century, tension developed between the 13 states and Great Britain over the lack of representation and burned some taxes leading to the American Revolutionary War, a war that broke out in April in April of 1775, ended in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris signed between the U.S. and Great Britain. However, on July 4th, 1776, just over a year after the war broke out, Americans adopted the Declaration of Independence. The United States of America was born on this day, celebrated annually as Independence Day. So that whole thing was correct. They had to throw one line in there. However, so I'm going to talk a little bit about those howevers as well. Last year on June 17th, 2021, President Joe Biden signed Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. He signed it into law. 
So don't go to your bank on Monday because they'll be closed. National holiday. And it passed in the Senate on June 15th, the House of Representatives on June 16th. The act was, it goes on to say, uh, Section 6103A, Title V, United States Code. So to designate June 19th as Juneteenth, National Independence Day. Now, I was curious about that, and Lily and I talked about it right before dinner tonight. Um, and Lily had commented on they're trying to make it stand for something that it really didn't stand for. This is what it originally ties back to. It ties back to June 19th, 1865. Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army issued General Order Number 3 in Galveston, Texas. The order announced that the people of Texas that the Emancipation Proclamation of freeing of enslaved people in the Confederate States was in effect. So it was the announcement, the declaration, Order Number 3, by General Gordon Granger of the Union Army, that announcing of the Emancipation of Proclamation. Now, we've heard of that before. I believe, in some sense, Lily's saying they're trying to make it mean something that it didn't mean. This is tying it back to an actual event that took place in our country in 1865. And I think, in some sense, some are trying to distract away from July 4th, 1776, and that celebration of our independence. We know with the 1619 project that that is the case. Now, I'm going to read something from the 16, or actually from Project 1619. And it's interesting because what they state is very factual, but it's not really what is being told in our media today. But this is what I wrote before we get to Project 1619. Although U.S. currency says in God we trust, it seems that our nation that was once founded upon biblical principles no longer looks to God, but rather is being guided by the principle of in government we trust. To accomplish a move from God to government, our nation's history then must be rewritten. And the 1619 Project its central thesis is to revise the date of America's true founding to the year 1619, when the first African slaves found their way to the colonies. And this is what was written on Project 1619. Make sure I'm looking at the right thing here. And the name of our title of this this article right here that the New York Times admits at last that its 1619 project is wrong. So this is not yet the Project 1619. I'll read about that in a moment. But some of the trouble of the 1619 project, on August 2019, the New York Times launched a project and called it the 1619 Project. The Times set out to make liars of the American founders. The 1619 Project sought to rewrite the American story. We would no longer be a nation built to protect the inalienable rights of all, as the Declaration states, but would instead become a nation forged specifically to enslave some, 
who would, who could be proud of an America if our nation was founded specifically to protect and project the abomination of slavery. So the 1619 Project fails to explain that those first Africans that came to the shores, and they did, it's, it's a factual event that took place, and I'll read about that in a moment, that they were indentured servants, much like if you read the history of the pilgrims coming to the United States, they too were indentured to a Thomas Weston, and it took them 20 years to get free from that man. So this man gave them the money to buy the ships, the supplies that they needed to come to the U.S., and they were to, through the wealth that they would be able to get out of whatever they would develop here, and they never planned to go to Plymouth. That's where God took them. They were to pay that man back within seven years, but it ended up being 20 years before their debt was paid. I say that because now, reading Project 1619, we'll find a similar 15 to 20 years being stated. So the first Africans who came, they were indentured, and they admit this. In the early 1600s, English settlers arrived in Virginia as indentured servants. They had contracts that required them to typically work for seven years before gaining their freedom. In 1619, the four first Africans who were captured in Angolia were taken to Point Comfort, today known, uh, today's Fort Monroe there in Hamptons, Virginia, and they were sold for food. Slavery was not legal at that time. So how were the first 20 or odd Africans treated? They were treated as indentured servants without written contracts. Many of them would work for 15 to 20 years before they gained their freedom, much like our pilgrims worked for 20 years to gain their freedom. And maybe the conditions were a lot worse for these Africans. I will not say that it wasn't. But what I actually liked about the legitimacy of this is they go on to say in this article, once their freedom was granted, they were able to start their own homestead. Mary White and Native Americans purchased the freedom of their family and relatives, own land, enjoy the fruits of the freedom. And the first 40 years in Virginia was not typical of the next 200 years when slavery became legal. And I'm not saying slavery was ever good. Slavery was a stain on American soul. But let's not denigrate the legacy of the Africans in America by calling them all slaves. So this is Project 1619 saying this. Today, the descendants of those first Africans are proud of their heritage. And then they go on to say, and this fits perfectly with the 1619 Project, let's pr promote 400 years of achievement, we built this country. So they're trying to change the history of our nation, tearing down statues of our forefathers, which we've seen take place in the last couple of years or more, trying to rewrite the history, changing names. Just last week I learned there... Um, in Yellowstone, they changed the name of the 
tallest peak in Yellowstone to the People's Mountain. So the explorer who discovered it, uh, his name was too woke to be continued to call that mountain by that name. So they changed the name to the People's Mountain. If you have a chance, look up what's happening in Yellowstone this week. They have some devastating things going on. I'm not saying that God is judging. I'm just saying it's interesting coincidence. We are trying to rewrite our history to get away from God and our godly heritage to say, not in God we trust, but in government we trust, trying to change the narrative. But I do not believe it's for the better. The day of the Lord, verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. As though a man went into his house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. It is, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So it's the prophet Joel who first said the phrase, the day of the Lord, in Joel 1.15, saying, alas. Remember, alas could be for that of um, kind of calling out for, now I said it, I have to look up my notes again. I forgot. I'm asking you to remember, and I can't even remember. The expression of woe or grief, and Joel saying the same thing, alas, the expression of woe or grief. Alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So Joel's prophecy included a great plague of locusts in Joel chapter 1. And the coming plague of destruction would be so devastating upon the land. And it was in a comparison to Israel's coming invasion by the Assyrian army. They would destroy the land that was before them. Others believe that Joel was referring to the day of the Lord, speaking about the coming judgment and the millennial reign of Christ, the tribulation period. And I believe both can be true. From the Old Testament's perspective, Joel prophesied judgment did come upon the nation of Israel. They did go uh, into captivity. But also, God often would have a near fulfillment of a prophecy that also looked forward to the coming fulfillment in the last days of the Lord. In the study of last things, we know it as es eschatology. And the day of the Lord includes the return of Israel into their land. That took place on uh, May 14th, 1948. I believe I had the right date there, not in my notes. But it also includes the rapture of the church, the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the Bema seat, judgment of Christ, the great white throne judgment, just to name a few of those things, all capsulated in the phrase, the day of the Lord. In our text, Amos warns those who are anticipating the day of the Lord. He said, it's not a day that you should desire, for it was a time of Israel's judgment and it will be a time of God's judgment upon this world so the Lord said it would be a day of darkness not light very darkness with no brightness in it at all Zephaniah 1 that day is a day of wrath a day of trouble and distress 
So Amos described the day of the Lord as unrelenting terror. Like a man, after fleeing from a lion, <laughs> runs right into a bear. Or he escapes the bear, runs into his house, he leans on the wall thinking, I made it and got bit by a snake. He could not escape the judgment. The judgment of that day will be inescapable for mankind. But for the church, the Word of God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet this does not mean that there will not be challenging times before us. It used to be, I'll admit to you as a child growing up in the church, my dad, the preacher, and other preachers as well, speaking about the rapture of the church, the Lord coming for his church, that I had in my mind that the Lord Jesus would come and take out his church, and then very bad things would happen upon this earth. And then as an adult, especially over the last 20 years, teaching in the word of God, and I've come to the realization that a lot of bad things are going to happen before the rapture could happen at any time. There's nothing holding Jesus back. But it's not like everything's good, the church is taken out, everything's bad. I think those bad things will be forming. They will be setting up for the Antichrist rule upon the earth. And we've never been more close, closer than where we are now. But it does not mean that things will not be challenging before the rapture. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3 says, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, and who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi, that's a priest. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the foundation of our salvation is Christ Jesus himself. But at the Bema Seat judgment, he will judge his church. He'll judge their works. And we'll be tested. We will not lose our salvation, but we might suffer loss at that judgment. And there'll be another judgment, and the great white throne judgment, where the unbelievers will stand before the Lord. Both death and Hades will empty their graves, and they'll be cast into, judged and cast into the lake of fire, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So Paul had this mindset of the Lord coming and judging his church, and the refiner's fire, we should have that mindset. Paul daily disciplined himself. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Thus I run, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest when I preach to others that I myself would become disqualified. So God will, Jesus will, at the Bema Seat Judgment, will stand before the Lord. It is, will not be a loss of salvation, but a loss of reward. But it will be a refining fire, like with 
Malachi 3, verse 3, the sons of Levi, he'll purge them as silver and gold that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And it's only Christ who can purify our hearts. So for months, I've been thinking about Amos 5.19, not knowing where it was in the Bible. For months, I've been thinking about this, knowing it came from Scripture, but I hadn't until this week looked it up. I knew it was somewhere. I knew I wasn't making it up, that there was this inability to escape trouble. And here it was in Amos 5.19, as a man who fled from a lion... Uh, met a bear and then went into his house, leaned his hand on the wall, was bit by a serpent. That's kind of how it's felt for me since President Trump first uttered those words, 15 days to slow the spread. March 16th, 2020. We had words and phrases that really had no significance to us at the beginning of 2020. We didn't know what COVID-19 was or the coronavirus. We've heard of pandemics, but we've never in our nation really been part of one or an epidemic. We've never seen a whole nation be forced into quarantine or lockdown or to shut down uh, the businesses of our nation, our schools, our workplaces, to require social distancing, to flatten the curve, all these words. We learned about community spread, super spreader events, contact tracing. I even had a few of those contact tracing as a pastor. I've had those phone calls from the health department. Here in Illinois and in the United States, we've been in a continual emergency, state of emergency, giving power to our government that they should not have. We, we didn't have a vaccine. I don't know if we do have a vaccine. Many people call it the jab. We've learned about PPE equipment and we found that our cloth masks are no good. And yet they're still trying to make us wear them. One doctor from two years ago I heard say, putting a cloth mask on is like trying to keep a mosquito out in a chain link fence. It's just not gonna happen. And I just heard a few weeks ago, another guy say that, um, yeah, it's like a plus 50 times. It just, it never made sense to me, but that's where we've been over the last few years. Ever since President Trump uttered those words, on March 16th, 2020, 15 days to slow the spread. Now think about how many things have befallen our nation in the first six months of 2022. For we daily are inundated with issues or images like the necessity of taking the jab or talking about gay marriage or same-sex marriage. Abortion issue is at the forefront with uh, the Supreme Court ruling coming down that could be in a very positive perspective from the church's view coming down this month normally in june uh, they may be holding it up because of the protests going on but we'll see what happens with that we've heard so much about gender identity trans issues 
women empowerment and those two i put those purposely together this is my list i didn't even get this off of anywhere i was just thinking of things but i put trans issues with women empowerment because trans swimmers are taking away the place of women and athletes athletic positions we know you know you talk about women's rights and then we're not even sure in this nation what a woman is today or what a man is today there is hunger there's poverty we have the russian ukrainian war there's overpopulation and yet um, the by 2030 plan you'll learn own nothing and be happy and part of that plan is moving a billion people a half a billion people into europe and a half a billion people into the united states and canada and it seems like they're trying to do that right now as we have thousands coming over the border illegally we've learned of uh climate change lgbtq plus rights I haven't checked lately, but the last time I looked, they say that there's 112 genders out there now. 112. I'll just state it from the Word of God, there's only two. Male and female, He created them. We'll keep it right there. Keeps it kind of simple. Climate change is hot today. They'll be talking that's climate change. Critical race theory, racism, religious discrimination, mass shootings, the Second Amendment now being challenged because of those mass shootings, voting rights, uh, inflation that takes us back. For a while, I've been hearing about, this hadn't been, and they're still talking about 40 years ago, the Carter, last time we went through, and Lily and I just got married in the early 80s and went through this hyperinflation. Our first house loan was 11 and a quarter percent. The first car we bought, we paid 18 and a half percent on interest rate for that vehicle. Thankfully, neither one cost a lot, so the percentage wasn't a killer. Um, the vehicles we have now are truck and car. My truck's paid off, but they both cost more than my, our first house did. So, incredible. Um, they raised the interest rate today. We have high gas prices. I can't look at a gas station without getting angry. Baby food formula shortage. That one doesn't impact me much, but many of the mothers and families across our nation, it does. And we have empty grocery shelves, something we've never seen. We were watching a cooking competition, guys' grocery games uh, this evening, briefly, just flipping through channels during a commercial. And I thought, well, his shelves are still full. It's not looking like the grocery stores that we've been going to. We're seeing things that we haven't seen before. So this was written on December 31st, 2021. And it was from the New York Post. Slightly more than half of the Americans dread what 2022 has in store for the country with 50% predicting the new year will be bad for the economy amid rising inflation and supply chain shortages. A new poll released on the last day of 2021 found 
along with 51% who fear that 2022, what 2022, who fear what 2022 will mean for the U.S., 54% fear what's coming for the world next year. They fear over half of the world, those sur surveyed in this survey, over half the people were concerned. And now we're nearly six months into 2022. And we find that uh, a Pew poll that was taken on April 25th to May 1st, and I believe this one had like 1,001 people in the poll. And they asked the question that the biggest problems facing our country and they gave four categories for the people being polled. Uh, inflation, a very big problem, moderately big problem, a small problem, or not a problem at all. So inflation, 70% of the people, a very big problem. And there's 1% of the people that say, yeah, no problem at all. So I'm sure there are some people out there that inflation is like, yeah, we're going to make a lot of money off this. But for most of us, 70% of us, a very big problem. Healthcare was the next thing on the list, 55% saying a very big problem. Violent crime, very big problem, 54%. Gun violence, very big problem, 51%. You can take away all the guns in the United States. It would be breaking the Second Amendment. But that will not deal with the true issue. It's a hard issue that we're seeing played out on the streets in our nation today. The issue is a hard issue. Federal budget deficit, 51% saying it's a big problem. Climate change, 42%. They're, I believe they're spinning a lie with climate change, but people are beginning to believe that lie. 42% saying, yeah, a very big problem. Quality of public schools, this should be much higher but only 39% saying it's a big problem. Illegal immigration, 38% says it's a big problem, and racism, 35%. Road infrastructure, I was could have just put down infrastructure, but they're trying to make infrastructure something totally different than what we're used to. So roads and bridges, 30%, big problem. Unemployment, 23%. COVID, only 19%. Most of the nation not too worried about the COVID. Another poll in April of 2022 said that 20% of the respondents said that the most important problem facing the United States was dissatisfaction with the government and poor leadership. And then it went on to talk about the cost of living and inflation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll see, though, that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. We see that. Kingdom against kingdom. We see that. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. We see that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 8, all these are but the beginning of sorrows. Since that time, I think we are closer to the end of these sorrows than the beginning of sorrows. But thankfully, God, like in the book of Amos, in the Gospels, 
He's calling out for individuals to come to him, to seek him, and to be saved. In Amos 5, verse 4, God says, Seek me and live. And to this day, Jesus is crying out, saying, Seek me and live. So we find that God hated, verses 21 through 23, despised Israel's feast days. He said, I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your song, for I will not hear the melody of your string instruments. Israel was a very religious people, but they were no longer worshiping, truly worshiping God. And God said, I hate, I despise your celebrations because you're not worshiping me. I fear that much of the church, maybe not the majority of the church, but there is a strong portion of the church today in the United States and throughout the world that God could say the very same thing. You're not worshiping me when you gather together. So he calls, I love this, verse 24, let justice run down like water. Let righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what he calls for his church to be doing. Let justice run down like water. Righteousness like a mighty stream. One of the most beautiful verses in the book of Amos, God's desire for his people then and his desire for his people today. That justice and righteousness, think about that running down, flowing forth like water, like a mighty swim, stream being swept away with justice and righteousness. And all we see in our world today, it seems, is injustice and unrighteousness. So God condemned them in Amos 5, 7 for turning justice to wormwood, laying righteousness to rest in the earth. And God proclaimed that you have turned justice to gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. So what are we to do? Well, I believe, first of all, we need to, as believers, heed the commandments of the Lord. Isaiah 48, 18 says, Oh, that you would heed my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. We need to first heed the word of God. Second, do righteousness and justice. Proverbs 21, 3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. God wants our hearts, not our offerings. I mean, the offerings will come from those with the right heart attitude, but we are to live Christ before others. We are to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, according to Micah 6.8, before God. So Israel, it goes on in verses 25 through 27 to talk about their time in the wilderness, something that actually Stephen accused his generation of, actually quoting from Amos 5, 25 through 27, about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, how they worshiped the gods of the land instead of worshiping the true God over Israel who had delivered them. And Stephen would say in Acts 7, 
51 saying, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, fathers did, so do you. Stephen accused his generation saying, you're just like the people in the wilderness. They were freed from Egypt, and yet they never entered into the promised land. They died there in the wilderness. And there's an amazing thing that uh, with the children of Israel in the wilderness, here's some math I did on this. God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision when Ishmael was 13 years old and Isaac was a newborn on the eighth day, he was circumcised. Ishmael, Abraham, all his men circumcised at that time. So Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Isaac was born at 100. Ishmael would have been circumcised the day that Abraham was circumcised. Isaac, a year later when he was born. Esau and Jacob were born when Isaac was around 60 years old. Jacob took his entire family down to Egypt when he was 137 years old. They spent 430 years, came out to the day according to the word of God. And so the children of Israel had kept the sign of circumcision for 628 years until the generation that came out of Egypt, those who roamed around in the wilderness, never circumcised their children. One of the first things God would have them do when they entered the promised land before they fought any battle was for all the males to be circumcised. They had kept the rite of circumcision for 600, by my math, according to what I came up with in the Bible, 628 years, and one generation failed. Are we living in a similar generation in our world where they have failed to uphold the word of God? And yet God was able to work through the next generation. My desire is that we would see God work in the next generation if he should so tarry. So verse 27, Therefore I will send you, talking to Israel, into captivity beyond Damascus, talking about their captivity through the Assyrians. So a lot going on in our world, a lot going on in Israel as well. We should keep an eye on Israel upon the last days and the difficult times that are going on. A couple of things that popped out to me as we close out. Although we seem to be living in the last days or the last days are right upon us, I do not believe that the time preceding the rapture of the church will not come without great difficulty. I believe we will see hard times. I believe we are seeing hard times. Does it mean that the Lord is coming very soon? Possibly. For the trying circumstances of our current world is only a foretaste, though, of the devastating times that will precede our Savior's coming. Just last week, we had an addendum to our insurance policy here at the church, and they added... Um, I think it was $198. Not a lot of money, but we pay quite a bit altogether. But they added $198. The addition, the addendum was for terrorism. Why? Because churches are being threatened today. 
Also, over the last two weeks, I began hearing the danger of Christian nationalism. Actually, it ties all the way back to January 6, 2021. And they say that that assault against our capital, that it was Christian nationalism and that white evangelicals. Here's what one article had to say about that. Though it is modern day proponents might not be so explicit to speak about the terms of the elect or the chosen citizens throughout our nation's history, even before Christian nationalism has sought privilege and ascribed moral worth as an us, white, natural-born, cultural conservatives over and against them, everyone else. So when you hear that phrase, Christian nationalism, they're trying to put people against one another white against everyone else. That's not Christianity. But if you read historically, socialism and communism taking over a nation, that's what they all always do, is they put people against one another within the nation. They'll put the workers against the employers, and they're doing that even today. Although true Christianity has always been an enemy to the left, they are now emboldened to admit it publicly and even run their uh, platform, political platform on these things. So what are we to do as believers? Many believers spend far too much time in the wilderness of this world. Many believers are more like that first generation that came out of Egypt but never entered into the promised land. They just never get there. We are not to be like that. They try to walk a fine line between living in the spirit and walking in the world, and it can't work. It's God's desire that we would live as he has called us to live, that justice and righteousness would continually flow from our lives to all those around us. On yesterday's broadcast of Stand Up for the Truth, David, I'm going to put this on air on Friday. I, I liked, I was encouraged by Dr. Jim Garlow. So David Fiorazzo's guest on Stand Up for the Truth was Dr. Jim Garlow. And Dr. Jim Garlow was on President Trump's faith advisory team for four years. So David asked, right before they went to a break, he asked, encourage people who might be feeling overwhelmed by everything that's going on. And this was his response. So I heard it, I paused, I went to lunch, I was on the road, I came back to church, and I copied what he said. So Dr. Jim Garlow, and I was encouraged in two ways. At the beginning of his broadcast, he said, I was raised in California in a farming community in a one-room schoolhouse, a very small church. He said, out of that church, 39 pastors and pastors' wives came out of that small church, and I'm number 36 of the list. So small churches, God can have a great impact. He said, God is still God. Jesus is still Lord. He is still in charge. And we are committed to walk with him, regardless of what might happen, number one. Number two, 
We're going to stay informed and articulate. We stay in the battle. We're not wimps. We are made for this moment. God put us here on the earth on purpose so we get ourselves informed on the issues. We begin by articulating the issues. I added that. I couldn't quite understand how he worded that. He was going fast when he said this. And I listened to that about three times. I think that's as close as I could understand it. We begin by articulating the issues. Know the issues. It is right to push back against evil and any form it manifests. So we do not for one second give up. Are we disappointed? Yes, much of the time. Are we discouraged? No. We refuse to allow the spirit of discouragement to take us. Disappointed, okay, but discouragement, do not allow that to crowd in upon you. We stand up and we fight. Our forefathers of faith have been in this moment 10,000 times before us, and they stood and walked their way through this, and so shall we. So I put down just three verses of Scripture and some small commentary to finish out this passage. Jesus said, we are to do business until he comes. Luke 19, 13. To do business, it's actually an imperative in the Greek. It means that we are to busy ourselves or to carry on in business until the Lord comes. In that passage, he's talking about spiritual gifts given to the church, to servants. And so in the church, we are to use the gifts that the Lord has given us until he comes. Secondly, Jeremiah 29, 7, we're to seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. Pray to the Lord, for in it, in its peace, you will have peace. We're to seek the peace of our communities. We're to pray to the Lord for the peace of our cities. Because when there is peace in our cities, then we have peace. We're to engage. It's not just a physical warfare, but a spiritual warfare as well. And the last verse of Scripture, Proverbs 13, 22, a favorite of mine since I qualify in this verse now. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance, and my kids, my grandkids might get something when Lily and I are gone from this earth that the Lord should tarry. But I hope they give more than just physical goods. I hope that I can leave good inheritance of spiritual wealth to my children, to my children's children, and in this church as well. So we are to battle for our families, for our children, for our grandchildren. We are to set an example of how we ought to walk and to please God. And so, Father, we thank you. For this word, we know that there are great trials in this world, but we are not to be without hope. So be our hope this night. Lord Jesus, you promised your disciples, you promised up us that my peace I give you, my peace I leave to you. Let that peace that surpasses wisdom and understanding guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord tonight. And I pray, Father, help us to stand, to stand strong in the faith, to occupy until you come, to do business until you come. 
And help us, Lord, to desire to leave spiritual gifts to those who come after us, if you should so tarry. Again, Lord, we just ask for those we prayed for at the beginning of the service, for their physical healing, but for those also, Lord, who possibly need spiritual healing, those who may not know you as Savior, we pray that that would be the priority. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.